Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Welcome to the Victim Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about child sex trafficking. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have Tomas J. Lars. Tomas uses he, him pronouns and is the founder and president of United Abolitionists, formerly Florida Abolitionists Incorporated, an anti-human trafficking organization that networks, facilitates, and creates preventative and restorative solutions to ending modern day slavery. Tomas is also the co-founder and former chairman of the Greater Orlando Human Trafficking Task Force Incorporated which is now known as the Central Florida Human Trafficking Task Force, and has 31 years of human services experience at the local, state, and national level, managing and starting nonprofit and public advocacy initiatives. So Tomas, thank you so, so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Emily. Uh, I'm excited to uh, have this conversation. And I also have joining me Jenny Castaneda. Jenny uses she, her pronouns, and has been a victim advocate with the Office of the State Attorney for nine years. She is currently assigned to the Human Trafficking Unit at the Metropolitan Bureau of Investigation. She graduated from the University of Central Florida in 2012 with a bachelor's degree in psychology and a certificate in victim advocacy. During her time as an advocate, her focus has been on domestic violence and sex crimes cases. Jenny has also worked with an array of victims, including victims of felony crimes and the families of victims of homicide. So Jenny, thank you as well for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again. I'm, I'm really excited. This is a really, really important topic. Um, as a brief introduction on this podcast, we talk a lot about different trauma and violence people experience and human trafficking is no different. So the VSC being the Rape Crisis Center for Orange, Seminole, and Osceola counties, we work with a lot of survivors of sexual assault and sexual violence, and some of those survivors may also have experienced human trafficking. Human trafficking not only happens in the U.S. and across the world, of course, but is also extremely rampant in Central Florida. Specifically, according to the Orlando Sentinel, Orlando actually ranks third in the nation, just behind Washington, D.C. and Atlanta for human trafficking hotline calls. If you take into account its population size, which actually puts it ahead of places like Miami and L.A., which I think is really, really surprising. Human trafficking is also such a complex issue with different types. So today we are going to be focusing specifically on child sex trafficking. What puts places like Orlando specifically at risk for human trafficking, common misconceptions about this issue, how it is being addressed in Central Florida, and ways we can get more involved to help end human trafficking. So with that, to start off, could you tell me a little bit about your roles and how you work together? Uh, Well, my role with the Metropolitan Bureau of Investigation as a victim advocate is to respond with uh, law enforcement on scene when we receive any tips from uh, the hotline or local law enforcement about a potential human trafficking 
um, victim in the area. So I go out with the agent assigned and I provide information about resources available in the community. I conduct a, an assessment with them to, um, to see if they need any sort of shelter, basic needs, find placement for them um, with a lot of minors. Um, anytime we encounter a minor, there's a call to the Department of Children and Families for them to provide services as well. Um, crisis intervention and emotional support uh, is, is my role in, in all of this and also providing guidance throughout the criminal justice process. That's so important to have. And I always love hearing from victim advocates because your role is so crucial for survivors in their healing journey. Tomas, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about your role? Sure. So I'm so uh, thrilled at what Jenny shared. And uh, as that's really specified victim advocacy uh, there out of the uh, Metropolitan Bureau and the state attorney's office of circuit judicial circuit nine here in Florida, because, you know, in those beginning days, um, there was re really not this type of uh, victim centered approach. And so uh, thank you, Jenny, for that. Um, my role is uh, being in the, in the movement uh, from day one was really responding to those hotline calls. And at first it was going on uh, stings and operations uh, with uh, law enforcement, specifically the FBI and then the uh, MBI, uh, Metropolitan Bureau of Investigation, our local vice unit, and getting those calls at uh, two and three in the morning. Um, that there was a possibly a uh, victim identified uh, through a recovery or another operation or crime. And so my role has been, we established a 24 seven hotline. Uh, we've worked with the Polaris Project, the National Human Trafficking Hotline since 2010. Uh, any calls we receive for minors, we refer, uh, as Jenny indicated, to the Florida Department of Children and Families Abuse Hotline uh, for on their maltreatment code as mandated reporters. And so our, our role, my role is uh, reporting uh, that initial um, recovery and or identification of a, uh, could be sex trafficking, uh, labor trafficking, uh, male or female victim, and then getting them to the right stakeholder. That's incredible. And, and I know that you've done so, so much in regards to the movement of human trafficking, and we'll explain a little bit why that's so integral specifically for the community that we're, we're residing in. Um, but I'm really curious, Jenny, you know, what made you get involved with ending human trafficking? So I started getting involved um, with victims of human trafficking when I had been an advocate for about seven or eight years. My focus up to that point had been in domestic violence and also worked some um, sex crimes cases and in, in the Ninth Circuit. And I started going to trainings that, and, and conferences that discussed human trafficking and just learned about this, this you know, something that was very new to me at the time. Um, and it just started developing this passion for human trafficking, for the for victims of human trafficking, um, just realizing how much awareness was needed um, made me want to get into this work and specializing with uh, specializing in victims of domestic violence and and sex crimes, you know, with human trafficking, there's a lot of overlap in the dynamics of that victimization. So learning the, the dynamics and being able to work with both um, both of those types of victims, you know, and a human trafficking victim, you kind of combine those together. Um, and so that really just, just understanding how much awareness was needed in this area and, and such a unique, it's a very unique type of crime and a unique type of victimization just made me develop this passion for it and wanting to learn more and more. Definitely. You know, I, I, I definitely relate to the fact that I didn't realize how big of an issue it was really mm -hmm. um, specifically here too. But once you start learning more about it, you realize, wow, this is, this is a big, big issue. We need to be doing something about it. And Tomas, Absolutely. I'm, I'm a little curious, um, you know, how did you get involved with, uh, with human trafficking and ending human trafficking? Sure. So for uh, many years, I was involved in uh, child welfare and the prevention of child abuse. And in 2004, 
on a trip to Washington, D.C. after a federal grant we received through the United Way. I was uh, invited to, at that time, U.S. Senator Sam Brownback from Kansas weekly staff meeting. And uh, this was July of 2004. And so uh, he had he was introducing his staff coincidentally that day to the issue of uh, human trafficking. And you can imagine the awareness or consciousness uh, in 2004 on the issue was very little. If anything, we thought it was just overseas, right over there and not here in our own backyard. And so that day, hearing about uh, the trafficking in persons report that our State Department issues every June. So that was the 2004 edition. Um, and I was beside myself to find out there was modern day slavery. In fact, I started uh, really uh, connecting the dots of the in child welfare of the kids that were being sold by their parents for drugs, that it was actually human trafficking. And so I came back to Central Florida in that time and uh, found that we were one of the leading states uh, with the first case, the United States versus Tecum in 1999, which helped establish the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000 and invited that victim advocate, the sheriff of Collier County and Professor Terry Coonan to one of uh, our first seminars here in Central Florida. And that was the beginning of my journey. That's incredible. I, I, yeah, I think that what you said is absolutely true. We have this idea that it's, you know, happening over there, which would be bad enough. But I think that us realizing, oh, wow, it's actually happening here. And you brought up a good point where, you know, we maybe as a society don't even know what is human trafficking. So how would you define human trafficking and are there different types and and what are the types? So I would just say, first of all, that you know, as you know, Emily, in working with uh, sexual assault uh, victims, it's kind of the same. Um, I, I see that history, right, is uh, repeats itself. Where what we thought of sexual assault victims years ago, right? That what did you do to provoke him, right? And and that was such an inappropriate question of being raped, right? What did you do, or of domestic violence, right? What did you do to provoke him, you know? And there was such a a misunderstanding of those issues. And so with human trafficking, there, there still is. And, uh, I, you know, there needs to be a lot of education that that person does not choose to uh, be victimized or exploited, right? Even if it doesn't matter if they voluntarily went to, uh, to a strip club to strip, they went to strip at a strip club, not to be raped brutally and controlled in forced fraud and coercion. And so, um, just that understanding uh, and those layers, right, of um, vulnerability, exploitation, and understanding that I think is the first step to, to knowing what human trafficking looks like here. Definitely. Thank you for shedding light on that. Yeah, that those victim blaming questions are um, absolutely inappropriate and, and really harmful to survivors. Um, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Jenny, I don't know if you had any specific definition that you wanted to share as far as how you define human trafficking. Yeah, I think overall I would I would define it as the the crime where a a person is coerced into providing labor services um, or engaging in commercial sexual acts. Because like you mentioned, there are a lot of different types of human trafficking, you know, sex trafficking being the one that we're focusing on today, but there's also labor trafficking and domestic servitude and other types of human trafficking. So any, it's, it's the crime where any person is, is coerced by uh, the use of force, fraud, or coercion to provide services against their will. And there are a lot of different ways. One of the myths is that victims are not um, free to leave or that they are completely confined or physically being held against their will. But a lot of times the way that they're being held is by psychological manipulation. And that is that is a huge, huge thing that we see a lot with with victims. Absolutely. And can you just give like an example? Because first off, yes, you know, whenever we see human trafficking, online or, you know, um, awareness events or anything like that. A lot of times we do see like bars or chains or something. And I can totally see how that, that would perpetuate that misconception. Can you give like an example of what that psychological, um, harm can look as far as, um, you know, what, what have you seen? 
Yeah, well, traffickers um, are very good at grooming and they know exactly the, the, the population or the, the type of, of, let's say in this case, like children, when they target children, they target children that are in the foster care system. They target children that are um, homeless, uh, children that don't have good connections with their parents. And they give them exactly what that child needs, basic needs, food, shelter. And then they give them all the emotional needs. You know, they, they give them love and support, what looks like love. Um, but really it's a way to start to groom them to be able to later control and manipulate them. Um, there might be, you know, the use of, of, of threats towards family members that, the victim cares about or, or any family, friends, anything like that. There are use of, you know, if you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to hurt them. If you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to tell everyone what you've been doing um, and sort of victim blaming and threatening to expose them. And um, so there's a lot of that, that sort of manipulation of, you know, expecting loyalty from these victims and, you know, being there being consequences when when they're not being quote unquote loyal. Absolutely. You know, while you were talking, I know that you were talking earlier, the overlap of domestic violence and, and this issue. I'm starting to see like the power and control wheel here, the yes. emotional manipulation Absolutely. and the grooming with like child sexual abuse and things like that. It's it's all connected, right? And that's mm -hmm. why um, it's so integral that we like work as partners in this community. I'm so like grateful for our partnerships because yeah, we can, you can see how they're all kind of connected and you mentioned, um, you know, children. So that's really who we're going to be focusing on today. So Tomas, do you happen to have like a clear definition of exactly what child sex trafficking is or what it could look like? So one of the things that has been cleared up uh, recently and part of it is in the Florida safe Harbor law. Um, and also just in um, really recent legislation um, here and nationwide is that a child cannot consent to uh, sex trafficking, sex work, prostitution, et cetera. And so before what had happened in, in those early days, I remember uh, when I would be called by FBI or MBI, we would uh, on a recovery for 14 year old on Orange Blossom Trail here in Orlando, uh, guess who ended up going to the juvenile detention center that night? It wasn't the buyer or the trafficker. It was the victim. And so they were being re-victimized. Uh, you know, a whole uh, criminal um, sheet started on them, right? And uh, we know what that can produce uh, as a consequence. And so the uh, for those, you know, what we refer to domestic, um, domestic minor sex trafficking or CSEC, right? Commercial exploited um uh, children, uh, exploitation of children, those two things are, there does not need to be uh, proven the force, fraud, and coercion as we do with those who are 18 and over um, that are victims of human trafficking. Just the fact that they were uh, being exploited in uh, sex trafficking, for example, uh, they're automatically a victim of human trafficking. So it could be parents selling their kids for drugs, you know, a pimp, um, prostituting someone or um, exploiting them online, et cetera. Wow. Thank you for shedding light on that history too. I had no idea that that was, you know, where we were coming from. So I'm glad that changes have been made. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was such an injustice uh, that was occurring. Definitely. And, you know, um, I think, uh, Another term that I wanted to bring up too is that, you know, there is a difference, right, between human trafficking and smuggling. Is that right? Yes, that's a that's a big misconception. A lot of people um, will think that human trafficking is is the same as smuggling. So I'm glad we're we're talking about this because there is this misconception, maybe because of the media and movies and things that we see um, that it's that smuggling is the only way uh, of human trafficking. And so when we talk about smuggling, we're talking about an, an offense against the US border. When we're talking about human trafficking, uh, we are talking about 
an offense against a person, a human being, a violation of their human rights. Um, and so when we, the focus of smuggling is transporting, harboring of undocumented people. This is where we see like the labor trafficking, things like that. The focus of human trafficking is the coercion and exploitation of a human being. So that's, that's the big difference. I appreciate that that uh, definition and that difference that you highlighted there. I think that that's so integral because, yeah, there's so many misconceptions about this. Um, and I know earlier on we kind of were referencing that Florida is a huge state um, where this is happening a lot. Um, so just shifting gears a little bit. So research actually shows that Florida is ranked in the top five states in the U.S. when it comes to human trafficking reported cases, and that Orlando, like I mentioned, is third in the nation for human trafficking calls. So I wanted to ask, you know, what puts Central Florida at risk? Why is it such a hub of human trafficking? So I would say, Emily, that um, first of all, just kind of building on what Jenny said, that we're not even scratching the surface of identifying victims of sex or labor trafficking um, because we know that only a small fraction reports, right, of any crime or any exploitation. And that is exacerbated by the confusion of smuggling um, or what they call, quote unquote, illegal immigration, um, which we uh, like to refer to as undocumented workers. Most of the labor trafficking cases I've worked on here in Florida were uh, legal workers under a guest worker visa, H2B, uh, H2 one or um, visas and or student visas. And so uh, folks are here legally because Florida is an open state and, and really welcomes foreign born businesses and workers. And yet there's not an accountability to look at the supply chain or the who's getting the contracts right from that third party. And so this is a really systemic broken dysfunctional system that we now see as well with our immigration debacle. And so I, I'm just saying that boldly, and I'm glad you are so glad you're shedding light on that, this with your, this podcast, because we're not scratching the surface, number one. Now, being named the number three state and Orlando per capita, the third city in calls um, can actually be a positive thing in that our citizens are reporting. And so that's why I remember it's the, um, the amount of calls that are coming in. It's not actually victims or cases, which I think there couldn't be a, a reflection, right, based on, uh, on the reports. Um, uh, but no, no, no one has really quantified that. But with that being said, our, our citizens are informed because all our wonderful agencies on the Central Florida Human Trafficking Task Force um, are doing trainings, presentations daily. The awareness level is extraordinary here in Greater Orlando, and so that is uh, kudos to our stakeholders. But also, um, in the same breath, we're hardly scratching the surface, I believe, and what's really occurring. And organized crime knows that, and unfortunately, politically, uh, certain political uh, persons and parties are um, using this to. Uh, create confusion about immigration um, and uh, or smuggling or uh, foreign workers when really they are the victims. And just like we had, I just gave the example of the minor really being the victim um, before the, the law was corrected. And so I, I believe uh, this is another uh, huge population uh, that really needs advocacy and uh, our laws to uh, reflect um, helping them, not hurting them. That is such an important point. I'm so glad you brought that up, Tomas, that, you know, whenever we share any kind of stats, even in sexual assault cases, too, it's just reported numbers. So this is just what we know. And we know, like, things like sexual violence is one of the most underreported crimes. And there's a lot of reasons why survivors don't come forward. Lots of different barriers, fear of not being believed, fear of being blamed for it. And you mentioned that, um, I think that that's a really good point too, that there could just be more awareness of human trafficking in Florida specifically. And that is definitely based on the work that our partners are doing and, and what you're doing and what you're doing, Jenny. 
Um, but I also am curious, you mentioned when people call into the hotline, it sounds like most of the time, is it, you know, a referral, like someone noticing something and then they're like calling in with a tip or is it survivors calling the, the hotline? So in the last, I would say four to five years, we've had more and more survivors calling uh, where it has gotten on the streets or in the jails or um, in, that, in their community, other circle that they, there's help. And so that's another huge positive, uh, you know, uh, fact um, for the advocacy that's occurring within our agencies. Um, but, you know, the awareness, part of the, the positive thing of the awareness too, is a lot of folks give the 888-3737-888 number, which is the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And also we encourage, if it's a minor, to the 1-800-96-ABUSE hotline in Florida. Um, and so with that going around everywhere, I think that's why there's an increase in the calls, but it is from, you know, uh, emergency rooms, hotel staff, um, other frontline workers, right? Of course, law enforcement um, that are calling in, but also more and more survivors as well. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I, it, it's, it's great that people from all sides are kind of stepping in and being active bystanders. And also survivors are able to get connected as well. That's, that's great news. Um, Jenny, I wanted to ask you, you know, is, are there certain characteristics of Orlando or central Florida that um, maybe a reason why, and again, we don't know why there's an increase. It could be just mm -hmm. people are more informed, but could there possibly be certain characteristics of central Florida that might make it more at risk? Yeah, absolutely. Our, our tourism, our tourism is, you know, great for the economy, but it also brings in a lot of, it, it drives up the demand for sex trafficking. And so some of the times where we see a lot of these calls, um, an increase in hotline calls or in law enforcement calls is when um, in Central Florida, we, hold, we host a lot of large conferences, a lot of large sporting events, and those events really uh, drive up the demand for for sex trafficking and so and and that's also one of the times where sometimes we see victims that don't want to report to law enforcement i'm sure that there's so much more than there's some that report and then there's just a large amount of of trafficking that happens during those events that go unreported because those victims are brought in from other states and sometimes they just want to go back home they don't want to deal with this they don't want to you know, they don't want to report, they're not able to get away from their trafficker um, long enough to report, and they're in an unknown place because they're not from here. Um, so they don't know about the resources that are here. They don't know how the state handles um, these kinds of cases. So tourism is, is, a, big, is a big contributor um, to why Central Florida is ranked so high. That makes a lot of sense. And I know, Tomas, you've been doing some work as far as you know, when there's a big event or something okay. that, um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what you're, you do for your work as far as preparing for those big events? Sure, sure. And if I could just say too, Emily, that, you know, part of the, that reporting, and I think that under-reporting um, that we're, we're talking about today, um, just to give your audience uh, just an example, quick example, uh, an idea, and then I'll answer your question, I promise, is that look at the Jeffrey Epstein case, right? It was so blatant. It was so, there's so many facts and witnesses and survivors. And yet look at the, the model and the circus and just the whole thing that this has become, right? And so um, the, the victim blaming, right? And that's huge. And so um, I just wanted to bring that out because people can really relate and have connected to the Jeffrey Epstein case. I know many people saw the series on Netflix or are paying attention to the news, but that's really important because that gives a real picture of what these victims go through, right? And that's the persecution and the blaming and the denial of, of others. Um, and so it's very uh, disgusting, right? And uh, despicable that, we are as a society that we, we've been there. But I know there's 
light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, we have the Me Too movement and, and now this uh, amazing anti-human trafficking movement. So I just wanted to get that out of my system and I will answer the next question. <laughs> if you can please repeat it. <laughs> no, I really appreciate you brought that up because I think that that is so true, that that is a great, um, you know, I feel like it brought up a lot of awareness of what it can look like and what the survivors do go through, like you mentioned, and also how big the system is too. And, and how, um, we can kind of come together like the light at, at the end of the tunnel and, and kind of address it. Um, I wanted to also ask, I know that one of the amazing things that the human trafficking task forces do and, and United abolitionists is to prepare for these big events. Yes. Um, when, when they occur in Florida, because we're a tourist place that makes sense. Um, so what are some of those things that, that y'all do? Great. So, you know, I was had the privilege of being on the first task force uh, against human trafficking in a sporting event in, in the country, if not the world. And that was the Super Bowl of uh, Tampa in 2009. And so that was the first time anybody had done something at a sporting event. And so we uh, created a task force and we started to... Uh, law enforcement and, and vice units were looking at, at that time's Craigslist was the big adult uh, services uh, before Backpage. And so uh, that was being tracked of how the increase of Craigslist personal or, or really sex ads were skyrocketed in the Tampa Bay area right before the Super Bowl. And so uh, that was documented. But also we, uh, as a community of advocates, we went to all the businesses around uh, the Super Bowl stadium uh, there in Tampa, to the restaurants, hotels, and the adult venues, because there's a lot of strip clubs there. And we educated them on what is human trafficking, what hotline to call, um, and also did a missing persons, uh, specifically children in that zip code, uh, posters and flyers uh, for them to post. And so that we began that real awareness, right, that it's happening at a sporting event or a big gathering. And so since that time, we've educated hundreds of hospitality businesses here in Central Florida um, to the point where uh, we started a program at the UCF Rosen College of Hospitality for this future hospitality leaders to go through uh, three courses before they graduate their um, and so that was launched. We also have a specific uh, curriculum for the hospitality industry that we do in person at Rosen College. And next year it'll be offered uh, online as well um, on demand. And so it's critical that we, uh, as Jenny had mentioned, that Florida is a tourist destination. And unfortunately with a lot of the good fans or uh, families come that those rotten apples, right? So uh, we have to address it. And it could be a convention, it could be a sporting event, it could be, um, you know, any type of uh, large festival uh, that folks come in that want to um, be involved with uh, nefarious uh, crimes. So that kind of give it a history is, is the importance of it. And we know this is global, right? Because the tourism, sports, uh, entertainment is just going to continue to grow. Absolutely. And I appreciate you, you know, shedding light on that. And also that's incredible. The, the education, I think, um, that really can empower people to, you know, anyone, um, can step in and kind of be that active bystander to help prevent it, see yes. it and make sure that, you know, the survivors get the help that they need, because yeah, like you mentioned, it could be you know, difficult to get away from their abuser. And so getting them connected to the right resources is so important. Um, Jenny, I was wondering, do you know what type of human trafficking is actually the most common here in Central Florida? Um, I would say sex trafficking. Um, that's, and, and maybe I'm, uh, that's the only part that I work with. <laughs> maybe Tomas, you have a different opinion on that because I, the victims that I work with are strictly sex trafficking, but that does seem to be the most uh, common here in Central Florida. Yeah, I think we think a lot about labor trafficking, but is that mm -hmm. correct, Tomas, that sex trafficking is the most common here? 
It is based on the calls and reports and cases, but again, because it's so underreported with labor trafficking, for example, um, and I think you really uh, hit the root of it today, Emily, in that um, it's being confused with smuggling and uh, quote unquote illegal immigration. And so, um, you know, those are just uh, illegal people, right? It's almost like they deserve to be exploited and punish, you know, they're here illegally. And so I, I do believe we know globally labor trafficking is, is uh, bigger than sex trafficking. But here in Florida, we really don't know um, because uh, so many are in the shadows. They don't want law enforcement involvement, right? Which would be uh, Homeland Security mainly or the FBI uh, for those foreign workers um, specifically. And I just think in labor, even the child labor that occurs, there's uh, sales, uh, bogus sales uh, traveling crew here in Central Florida that's been exploiting uh, minors for a long time. And, you know, the way they get around that is they um, have a fake nonprofit. The kids, they buy dollar store items that go to house to house and asking for donations because they're going to get a, a scholarship or uh, other dream trip to, to Disney or Universal. And it's actually, uh, these criminals are actually exploiting these kids. They get the parents or the guardian to sign a permission slip so they can do it after school or during the summer. Um, so when it went to uh, any of our courts, the judge said, well, the parents gave consent and they're just, you know, it's kind of like the after school Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, right, selling cookies. And it's really not that there's such a misunderstanding, but they got away. They're getting away with it because now they know uh, they, you know, getting the consent of the parent or the guardian uh, was uh, really a, a wall, right, of defense. Um, so they couldn't be uh, sued or in, get in trouble. So it's it's these type of things. And I to say all that, that's labor trafficking of children is to say that I, it could be bigger than sex trafficking, but we don't know. I think what we, we do know is that uh, there is uh, a demand uh, for sex trafficking of minors and adults. Um, and that's, that's what we're seeing here in Florida. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Again, it's, it seems like there's just, I wish that we could have more stats, honestly, but um, I'm seeing that as like a really big barrier here. Um, you know, I think we were talking a lot about misinformation and misconceptions. Um, is there a spreading of this misinformation of, of what human trafficking looks like? Like you mentioned, Jenny, a lot of times people think of it as like physically constrained, um, but actually it could be a psychological control. Um, I'd like to kind of know, like, what is the reality? We talked about Jeffrey Epstein. I don't know if there's anything else. But what does it really look like? And, and how is the media furthering this misconception? How can we stop this spread? Yeah, uh, the Metropolitan Bureau of Investigation does a lot of uh, presentations, you know, some of the presentations that Tomas was talking about. And in these presentations, we always like to mention the movie Taken, um, because it is, <laughs> it is the movie that people, uh, I think, first learned about, you know, what uh, the term human trafficking. And it was a great movie and <laughs> great actors, um, but it left people with this misconception of what human trafficking actually looks like and where it happened. You know, it portrayed human trafficking across, you know, overseas. And when really this happens right in our own backyard. And something that we had talked about a little bit before is just sort of changing the narrative of, you know, for the longest time, we just talked about prostitution and just women being prostitutes and saying, well, you know, it was considered a victimless crime. There was someone, it, it, was, it was something that happened between two consenting adults and there was no harm done. It, there was, you know, sort of the assumption that the victim wanted to do what they were doing. And, you know, over the years, and this is still fairly new, um, that we have been trying to change that narrative and realizing that, um, no, it's not just prostitution, that there is someone benefiting from, uh, from the sex acts, that someone is forcing them to do this, that someone is taking their money. And 
So that's been sort of the, the misinformation for a long time. We had this term of a child prostitute. And now we know that there is no such thing as child prostitutes. They, those are children that are victims of human trafficking because like Tomas said, children cannot consent to doing, um, to doing this. So there's that, there's that misinformation of what does it actually look like? And it could look like, you know, uh, someone who starts, um, you know, a lot of these trafficker victim relationships start off with like the, what we call the Romeo approach. It's, they start off as just the, the boyfriend, the knight in shining armor, you know, like the, that, that sort of, um, you know, caretaker. It starts off in a very uh, loving way or what looks like a loving way. And then very subtly, there starts to be that control and manipulation into, you know, forcing the victim to, to perform these sexual acts to prove that they love their partner. So, you know, it's not someone being physically restrained and chains and things like that. It could be someone that the victim um, is in a relationship with. They could be trafficked by their partner. I think that's such a great point. And I think that that particular example really drives home what it can look like. I know that it can happen like within families and things like that too. I think that there, when I hear about human trafficking, it's almost like, be careful, someone might you know, take you away right off the streets. Is that like a common misconception too? Right. Absolutely. The, the creepy guy in the white van is the, the common thing that, you know, is the big misconception that there is this creepy guy in a white van uh, driving around just picking up children. And it's not really the way that it works. Not to say that kidnapping couldn't be a part of it in, in some cases, but it is very rare. It's, it's mainly with the control and the manipulation and the, the grooming process. So it's, it's, it's a little bit different than what people think. Yeah, I think we're starting to see like it's much more complicated than, than many may realize. Um, it reminds me of just like with sexual assault, we have this idea that again, um, most of the time it happens with strangers, not the case eight out of 10 times. It's someone the survivor actually knows. So when we talk about like, like preventative strategies of like, you know, stranger danger and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. it can actually put people more at risk because they may not see the signs in their relationship of, oh, wow. Um, you know, this manipulation and then moving into a human trafficking scenario as well. So I really appreciate you breaking down that misconception. Um, you know, remaining confidential, of course, Tomas, would you be able to share some, you know, case studies that you'd like to like uplift um, to kind of highlight some of the common forms of child sex trafficking? Well, I remember a, a case um, here in, in Central Florida that MBI actually investigated and in those early days, um, I don't know if you knew this, Jenny, but I was the, the first advocate uh, at MBI. I Not, didn't. I didn't know yeah. that. So it wasn't, um, it was a very uh, special arrangement because it was not, I was not hired by any of the entities uh, on the payroll of MBI. We mm-hmm. had, a, I was the first non uh, law enforcement person to be uh, a part of that. And it was a very unique situation, mm-hmm. but, uh, and I had my badge and the parking and the, that private parking downtown yeah, and all, yeah. all that, all that fun stuff. So <laughs> with that, uh, we had a, you know, I worked with, uh, close with at that time, Sergeant Patrick Gookin and, um, we, uh, he did so many cases, but I'll never forget one of the cases where he, uh, recovered a 14 year old and um, that was actually being uh, chained to the bathroom. And so this was again, like Jenny said, a very rare where they're actually chained or, um, you know, that's just a small percentage. There, there, yes, there are kidnappings. Yes, there, people are chained, but it's a, a very small percentage of what we see in, in the whole umbrella of human trafficking. But this particular girl was, and she actually uh, escaped naked uh, into a neighborhood and uh, thank goodness a neighbor let her in. Um, but I'll never forget that case because, um, you know, she's just a little girl, right? And just to see her when she was not in her makeup or the uh, adult clothes 
um, that little girl and uh, the time that U.S. Uh, courts um, it, case is, you know, a federal case. Uh, and just to see how the transformation of her and uh, she was uh, staying at a, one of our safe houses for minors here in Central Florida and her uh, favorite uh, team was uh, the Magic. So we got them to all the players to sign a basketball for her. And so those were little things that seem, you know, um, but they're, they're huge, right, to that child. And so uh, that trafficker ended up getting, I believe, 12 years, um, which was not enough for exploiting her. And there's a, a bunch of folks involved. And a lot of times, too, Emily, that people don't realize the person who drove the car, right, who recruited, who harbored. All those are in the law of, of being uh, uh, considered uh, part of the trafficking crime and are, are convicted and sentenced. And so there was a whole group of them and they all got different years. But, you know, just to uh, walking through that case um, was every case is, how do you say it? It leaves an impression, but uh, particularly this case of this you know, little girl literally chained um, to a bathroom and just let out to have sex with the, the Johns or the buyers um, really left a huge uh, life-changing impression on me. Absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing that. That's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I'm really glad that she was able to get the help that she needed. And it's just, again, shocking that this happens at all, let alone like in the back, in our backyard, like you mentioned. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we can do, like you mentioned, as far as education, you work with hospitality, um, individuals and, and other individuals, you know, in the tourism industry and beyond, um, is for education, right. To see the signs of that a child might be experiencing sex trafficking. So what are some of those signs and what can we do as, you know, concerned citizens if we see them? I think school officials are so important. Teachers and just in general, school officials are so important because they are most likely the ones that are going to first be any sort of signs. If, if, if for some reason, you know, parents haven't been able to detect any of the signs, school officials would be uh, once that would. And so any like changes in school attendance, you know, a lot of these kids are missing a lot of school. So that is a big red flag. It's just uh, not showing up to school. Um, or when they show up to school, you know, their appearance has changed. There could be signs of, of physical abuse, unexplained injuries, things like that, that the child doesn't want to talk about. Um, sometimes one of the signs is that they start showing up with things that a child cannot afford on their own, like expensive purses or cell phones or, you know, prepaid visa cards, things like that, that, you know, where we should be wondering where did this child get the money to get that stuff from? And that is most likely things that the trafficker is using in the grooming process. Um, there could be, you know, new tattoos as a way of branding a victim that belongs to a particular trafficker. There are certain tattoos that they, they want their victims to get as, as a show, like to, to brand them. Um, you know, there could be, you know, it, just a change in behavior overall is a big red flag. You know, teenagers, Teenagers are going to be teenagers. There's going to be mood swings and things like that. But we're talking about like the drastic change in behavior. You know, a teenager that used to be very open may now be very shut down, um, isolated from their family, isolated from their friends, things like that. Is, is Those are indicators that something might be going on. Definitely. I appreciate you saying that. It's very similar to when we talk about prevention for child sexual abuse in general, where, you know, seeing these big, severe changes, like you mentioned, um, you know, maybe a straight A student is now flunking and not showing up to class, things like that. Right. With that, you know, if someone does see these signs, what, what can they do? Should they call like a helpline? Should like, how can they approach the child? 
Yeah, absolutely. They can start the conversation with the child and keeping those lines of communication open is, is a big, um, a big helpful thing to do for, for kids. It's just so that they know that they have someone to talk to, you know, not uh, approaching a child in a very non-judgmental way um, can be very helpful. But yes, anyone, teachers are uh, mandatory reporters. So making a call to the Department of Children and Families uh, is, is a must. Anyone can make that call. Anyone that comes across a child that they suspect some sort of human trafficking happening or any sort of abuse happening can call the um, can call the Department of Children and Families and, and make a report. They can call the hotline and make a report as well so that those get um, to the appropriate law enforcement agencies of where the child resides and then we can investigate and provide services. That's awesome. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that anyone can do that because really, you know, that's what really being an active bystander is all about. We all should be empowered to step in if we're noticing something. But with that, if we do want to help, is there anything that we should be mindful of to avoid making things maybe more dangerous for that child? Or is that not a, um, is that a misconception too? I would just say, you know, to let law enforcement do their part. You know, sometimes we get people that want to get involved or get justice for themselves or take charge of an investigation. And really the best thing that anyone can do is just report to the appropriate agencies and let law enforcement do their part to safely remove that child. DCF has protocols and procedures to safely remove a child from a situation law enforcement does too. Um, so to, to let the, the, the people who are trained to do this um, do that job. Definitely. Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. You know, Tomas, we talked a little bit earlier about reporting and some barriers that survivors may face. Do you have any other specific barriers that you want to kind of highlight as far as, you know, when it comes to reporting or seeking help? I think that uh, that's why training is so important to especially first responders, law enforcement, um, or any professionals, because that the time that they may see somebody who they either want to uh, self-identify and or uh, their suspicion of trafficking, um, calling the correct stakeholders, again, for minors in Florida, we call uh, Department of Children Families hotline, but I think a lot of times it's not seamless enough. And so, um, for example, I was talking to a certain agency uh, earlier uh, this week and they reported they called 38 different entities before they found uh, the right one and so there's because of the high turnover right and in, in all the different departments and agencies um, training needs to be ongoing training needs to be intentional training needs to be mandatory in my opinion because that is not acceptable a lot of these survivors are not going to wait, you know, two hours on a phone so that you can find the right person to help them. And so these are barriers. And so that training, uh, that first response, uh, calling, um, you know, the, the Florida Department of Children and Families hotline or Polaris or, um, you know, one of the advocates in, uh, in our task force is really the the best way to, uh, to get that victim survivor help. Definitely. And just to kind of highlight the training that you already kind of mentioned, you know, working with people in the hospitality industry and law enforcement, of course, and, and all of that. And as far as talking about signs and next steps, we have a first responders training for sexual violence, for example, you know, who to talk to, what's the next step, because coming at from a survivor lens, waiting two hours to get connected to the right person. That's just not realistic. That's awful. And no one, you know, again, we talked earlier about re-victimization and all of that. So super integral. I love, um, thank you so much what you both do as far as educating, um, you know, the central Florida community and beyond, as well as, you know, the amazing efforts that you're doing in, in central Florida. I think we've highlighted those as well. Um, and speaking on, you know, I know that you come from a domestic violence uh, background, Jenny, and, and you know, um, me coming from like a sexual assault 
mm-hmm. uh, lens, you know, we, we child sex trafficking, just like domestic violence and sexual assault are huge issues that affects communities as a whole. And yet, unlike domestic violence and sexual violence, which have their own, you know, official state board that certifies centers, there isn't one for human trafficking. So I'm wondering, why do you think that is? I think human trafficking is just fairly new in terms of the of considering it like a, a type of crime. We are just now in the in the last decade or so changing the narrative about what human trafficking is and what it looks like. And, you know, I think it's just, it's very new, but it is absolutely needed um, to get the same attention as domestic violence and and sexual assault. But I think one of the issues is just that as, as, as a society, as a community, we are just now learning on what human trafficking is, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like. And we are learning what the needs of the victims are. Definitely. And, you know, what makes human trafficking different from sexual violence and domestic violence? So I, I think for the way I look at it is it's not so much what's different. It's more so like how it overlaps and how it's similar. Um, I think it's just someone once explained it to me that human trafficking, and I'll never forget the way this was explained because it made perfect sense, but human trafficking is a combination of domestic violence crime, a sexual assault crime, and an economic crime all in one in one case and one victim. It's all of those things. Um, you know, victims of human trafficking are far more likely to be victims of sexual assault. And we talked a little bit about the dynamics of domestic violence and the grooming and the control and all of that plays into into um, the victimization of, of victims of human trafficking. So there, there's just a, a huge overlap in terms of power and, and control and the exploitation of the human being. And they're, they're very similar. I really appreciate you sharing that because that it is like a light bulb moment when you explain it that way, bringing in the economic piece to it. Um, that is so uh, important. And that really kind of helps us better understand this particular crime. And you mentioned we're just learning about the needs of survivors of human trafficking. And so I'd like to ask, you know, what are those needs and what are those services out there for survivors that are helping meet these needs for survivors? Sure. So um, there's, there is uh, resources, but they're very limited. And that's why we, uh, we really try to focus on um, victims of human trafficking, right? We, we get a lot of calls on the hotline for those that are sexual assault, domestic violence, and or child abuse. And so we refer them as soon as we uh, are able to uh, do a short assessment um, to those hotlines, right? So I've here in Orlando Harbor House, Victim Service Center, and or the uh, Department of Children and Families. Um, and so those resources are limited. And, uh, you know, for example, one of the things we started um, nine years ago was a recovery backpack drive. And so when we were going out on those stings on OBT and iDrive, um, we knew that sometimes they only had the, the clothes on their back, right? When they would get out of a situation. And so we started backpacks with hygiene, basic needs, clothes, um, and just really uh, wanted to give them something, for, uh, whether they're going, uh, you know, somewhere temporary or a shelter, um, to have something right for for their own dignity and hygiene and so that was is very popular it's been going on for nine years it continues to grow uh, we give those out to uh, law enforcement agencies child welfare um, and other frontline workers um, so the resources are as we were just doing this podcast i got i got two messages um, one from a survivor and one from a, a survivor leader uh, needing resources. And that's very common where I'll get, um, you know, five to 10 a day requests uh, through United Abolitionists for something uh, that the survivor needs. It could be a, a recovery or it can be ongoing. And so we tapped into our faith communities, our uh, many businesses that want to give back. And uh, so we've never um, really had to uh, 
pay for a backpack, somebody has donated it, a gift card, an Uber, a Lyft ride, for example. And we just continue to uh, build on the, those community resources. And that's where the community, I think Emily can really come in, whether it's a church, a synagogue, a mosque or a civic group is they may not be on the front lines like myself or Jenny or law enforcement are, but they can give that backpack, that gift card, uh, that counseling stipend, right? Uh, for that, uh, that survivor. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think as I'm listening to this, and I'm sure as many people are listening to this, they're like, what can I do? How can I help? So if they want to get involved, where can they go and how can they make those donations or where can they learn more about human trafficking? Sure. So we've been able to be a, a real resource to MBI and the state attorney's office mm -hmm. and some of the other governmental agencies because they can't give uh, survivors uh, gifts, right? Um, they'll be eaten alive in the, uh, if there's a court case with, from the defense. Uh, and so we are able to be that uh, entity. And so anytime uh, one of these agencies needs something, they, they call us United Abolitionists. Um, people go to our stophumantrafficking.com website or uh, reach out to us on social media. And we are, uh, if we have it, we will give it. If we don't, we'll find a, uh, uh, a resource or have a, a generous donor work directly uh, with that agency. And so um, yeah, please contact us, stophumantrafficking.com, um, or on our, we have, you know, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, so that uh, we, we have given, even in the midst of the pandemic, um, a very significant amount of resources out to the community. That's amazing. And I know that you do a lot of education, too, of course, that we were mentioning. Can anyone kind of like take a class from you or, um, yeah. Yes. Our next class, and it's going to be the last one of the year actually because of the holidays is Monday, November 22nd, um, at 6 PM is our class, uh, in person at Rosen college of hospitality. And, uh, it's really a one-on-one class, um, that we offer there. Uh, it's a two and a half hour, it's $40, but we, I get, I always bring a, a panel of experts um, in the different areas uh, to uh, train with me. And uh, so that's someone wants to learn about the issue or how to get involved, um, they can come to that class. That's awesome. And do you ever do virtual? We do. We've been doing uh, the last 19 months on Zoom, uh, folks that want to be trained and the, I think the only blessing of COVID-19 was uh, we've been able to uh, learn how we can reach a global audience. So there's people from all over the world in the country that are getting trained now via our Zoom channel. Um, and so that's great because we, we, we want to spread the word and duplicate the best practices that have been created here in Central Florida by our, our amazing stakeholders. Absolutely. I, I, again, I can't thank you both enough for all that you do and for being on today and spreading awareness about human trafficking. I definitely learned a lot from both of you. Um, but before we sign off, is there anything you'd like to say to the survivors out there who may be listening or anything else you'd like to add that we may have not addressed? I think to, to the general community, you know, it's up to us in the community to stop human trafficking. And I, I'll go back to the, you know, if you see something, say something. And, you know, we can, we can stop this. We can stop this by in the community being aware of our surroundings. If something looks suspicious, you know, call in the hotline. There's, there's nothing, if you're wrong, you're wrong. You know, I like to tell people, you might be thinking to yourself, what if you're wrong? But instead think, what if I'm right? What if you are the one lifeline for that person um, that is out there being victimized and a call to, to the hotline could save their life? So I would like to encourage everyone out in the community to, you know, report if you see something. And to the survivors, I'd like to tell every survivor that is out there that you are incredibly brave and we are here for you for whenever you are ready for resources or to report to law enforcement. There is an army of people out here in the community waiting to help you. 
Thank you so, so much, Jenny. I, I love that. Um, absolutely. And Tomas, is there anything else that you'd like to add on top of that? Sure, that um, kind of really to re reiterate that there's no nothing too small or um, shameful, right, to reach out for help. And I think sometimes we either think maybe I'm, you know, somebody's reporting uh, suspicious activity, uh, maybe I'm exaggerating, but I'd rather have you be, um, you know, cautious, right, and, and wrong versus um, possibly somebody being helped uh, that was uh, uh, needed, needed that call or that report. Um, and so please report and you can be anonymous too. Uh, I know um, in that reporting, please stay out of harm's way. As Jenny said, let law enforcement be law enforcement. We a lot of times say, hey, maybe get a description and of the persons or persons, maybe a license tag number if uh, you are able to capture that, but always stay out of harm's way. We don't want anyone to be hurt. Definitely. And I will be putting the phone numbers in the comments here so that people have them. But I think that that is a great place to sign off, you know, being an active bystander. And it's always more, I would absolutely rather uh, be wrong um, and be cautious, like you mentioned, and jump mm -hmm. in just because it's way more important to help a survivor um, or a potential survivor. So thank you so much, both of you for talking with me today. And thank you for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free individualized counseling and other services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org and to everyone listening. Healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so, so much, Jenny and Tomas, for joining thank me you. today. Thank you for having us.